Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? This is God's word. Amen. Well, I heard a lot of coughing during those prayers, so I trust I'm not alone in this allergy season. But thank you for your prayers. Um, Good morning. My name is Jeff Skipper. I'm the church planning apprentice here at Church of the Redeemer, and uh, I'm just thankful to share with you as always. I do want to thank you for your continued prayers and support of our church plant group. You've been coming and helping with our child care. That's a big deal because we've got a lot of little kids. So God bless you for that. Um, At our Sunday evening meetings, you've been financially giving. It's just a blessing to know that you are with us in this work, that we're not alone. And so uh, it means the world to us. And we're meeting, we're praying, and we're planning about the work that God's given us. So we're excited about that. So just keep praying for us. Pray as we seek to build new relationships with people. We're trying to be very intentional about that. Um, people outside of the church and our community. Um, so pray for that. Pray for the right place for us to meet, maybe in the fall on Sunday mornings, I don't know, to be provided for us and for faith and funding and so on. So thank you. God is growing our group. He is challenging us in our walk with him. And as you know, God does that to all of us constantly. He's constantly challenging us. If we're not being challenged in our walk with God somewhere, we, we may need to step back and say, are we following him? Uh, Because that's what he does. He's really good at that. And we see Jesus do that in the Gospels. He makes his disciples continually rethink uh, everything they thought they knew about him, him, uh, themselves, other people, the way you do life, uh, and the hard stuff. Specifically today, he challenges us and how we live in the hard stuff of life. Now Luke records that this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, the disciples are slowly beginning to see who he really is and what he came to do. Right? He's been demonstrating his authority over demonic powers, over sickness, and now over creation itself. And so we see right here that learning about Jesus was a process for these guys. And that's a good thing for us to remember, right? That getting to know God, who he is, the gospel, what he's done for us, how it affects our lives, learning to trust in him, that's a lifelong process. Coming to learn who he is. Are you doing that? And for many of us here this morning, constantly throughout our lives, uh, the work for us to do, to do is just the need to simply remember who he is, right? And so we seek to know him more. And this story this morning makes us ask, you know, right up front, what, what's hard in your life right now? Where are you worried, anxious, unsettled, overwhelmed, you know, hurting, confused? Where's that at for you? And this passage today shows us that God knows about that very thing, and he sees it, and he cares about it, and he's working in it, and he urges us to put our trust in him and let him calm us. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Right? He said, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. You know, can, do we mean it when we sing, sing, it is well with our souls? Does that characterize us, right? Quiet hearts calming presence of peace. And I have to confess, for me, often it's not. 
And Jesus today reveals that he's the one who can give this peace. And it leaves the disciples asking, who is this? Who is this guy? And what does he mean for me in what I'm going through right now? And that's what I want us to ask and apply today. Right? Specifically in relation to the hard stuff in life. Trials, suffering. And we're going to see that the gospel is God's guarantee of his goodness through all of that stuff towards those who look to Jesus. Because he really does change everything. And so I have three points today. If you look in your worship folder, I have two storms, the problem. Secondly, the calm, the power. And then finally, who then is this? The promise. Two storms. First, the problem. You may say, Jeff, I don't know what Bible you're reading. There's one storm here. Uh, And I hear you. But I I think we can see two. There's an external storm and an internal storm. And I want us to look at both, right? First, I want to look at this external storm. Jesus and his disciples get in a boat. They set out to cross this lake, and a storm comes. But to really understand and feel the impact of this story, we have to see that this was like no light afternoon shower or thunderstorm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the Gospels, all record this story, and they add different details to create like a complete picture of this event. And I think there's four quick things we should look at to see that this was a desperate situation, uh, to see that this was life and death, and it changes the way uh, the rest of the story goes. First, in the original text of these stories, in Matthew and Mark both, they include this Greek word before the word storm, and the word is mega. And we know what mega means, right? Mega, huge great. They say this was a mega storm. And so first, picture like a really intense storm. Secondly, the Sea of Galilee is a huge body of water. Do not picture one of these small Polk County lakes, like Lake Albert out here, okay? And it's situated in a place that is a, is a recipe for really bad storms. This sea is over 64 square miles in surface area, which would be, you know, I did like the nerdy thing to see how big it would be in Florida. It's like the third largest body of water it would be in Florida. So it's a huge body of water. Not only that, it's 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by big hills and ravines. And the air, cool air, comes over those mountains. And there's warm air above the water. And it clashes. And apparently, that's a recipe for unpredictable, really fast, sudden storms on this huge body of water. So you've got a, a rough body of water with quick storms. Thirdly, these guys are in a fishing boat, not a cruise ship. Okay? Uh, In 1986, they found a wooden fishing boat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it dated to be about 2,000 years old. So about what we're dealing with, you can look up pictures of this. It held about 15 men, and it was only about four and a half feet high. Okay, so this is a very vulnerable vessel if things were to get really bad. Don't picture a huge ship. Okay, and finally... As, as I build the case for this bad situation, not only are we on a huge body of water, the text that says it's a mega storm, a violent storm, you're in a relatively small wooden fishing, fishing boat. But not only that, these guys are experienced professional fishermen, many of them. They're not novices. They've probably been out, out on this lake a thousand times. So the fact that in this storm they are in fear for their lives proves that this was a deadly situation. This is not like me out on a boat, Right? I see a dark cloud, and I check my app, and I'm like, we need to go. It's going to get bad. I heard thunder like 20 miles away. Load up. Game over. Right? That's That's not what's happening here. These guys are desperate, and they're out of control. They are screaming like present tense. We are dying. Right? So it's a bad situation. So this whole scene for us is a picture of trials. Right? Difficulties, tough situations, brokenness, pain, suffering in our lives. That exists out there. 
This is a picture of external circumstances that make life hard. Some of these things we bring on ourselves because we've made bad decisions. A lot of these things just show up on our doorstep, right? Sickness, disease, death, these things that are out of our control that we didn't ask for, and they make life hard. But what makes these external things especially hard is the storm that they expose and stir up inside of us. And that's what we see happen here with the disciples. The external storm comes along and it exposes their lack of faith and it gets them in a fit. So we see not only an external storm, but an internal storm. And we learn that God sends storms and trials and suffering into our lives and they reveal what's already inside of us. Marissa and I were walking through Hobby Lobby a couple weeks ago. Marissa's walking through Hobby Lobby, right men? Marissa's walking through it. I'm following Marissa through Hobby Lobby, looking at my phone or, or whatever. And um, I, I looked up and I saw this like inspirational picture with, with a tree and like words on it. And I remembered what it said. It said something like, storms make tree roots grow deep. And I, I said, I don't know about that, right? I mean, storms come. I, I said, I think storms reveal how shallow the roots really are. The storm comes along and it just rips the trees up that don't have deep roots and it just dashes those trees, right? And she says, well, you would be the worst Hallmark card writer ever, you know? Um, and I was like, oh, I, I take that one. She's probably right about that. God's, God's working on that in me. But there's an aspect to what I said that, uh, that, that's true, right? Storms reveal what's already in us. It only takes the right conditions to come along and expose our level of trust in him, right? We don't know how deep the roots go until the storm comes, okay? It takes the right conditions. It exposes where we're at, where our level of faith is at. And we see that here with the disciples. Look at their reaction. When the storm comes, they absolutely lose it. The gospel writers don't say that they stay calm and they pray or they go rub Jesus on the back and say, hey, wake up, you know, wake up, sleepyhead, it's time, it's time to get up. No, I mean, they lose it. They bust in. They say, we are dying. Are you serious? Hey, Jesus, a little help out here, right? Everybody else is bucketing water out of the boat. You're the only guy asleep. Let's go. They're frantic. They're anxious. They're full of panic and fear. The external storm has created and stirred up and even exposed an internal storm that was lying dormant. And I think this is very true for us when things don't go as planned for us, right? Can you relate to that? You see, there's something deeper going on here, though. We don't, we don't see just uh, an inner anxiety. There's something deeper. There's unbelief. Because when this is all done, Jesus looks at him and he says, where is your faith? Right? He looks at him and he says, says, why are you acting this way? And this reveals their unbelief in Jesus' care for them. And they fall prey to what we often fall prey to is that their external circumstances, the storm, led them to wrong conclusions about Jesus rather than letting uh, what they knew to be true of God and Jesus to determine how they viewed their circumstances. But before we go there, let's step back. Let's just look at a few things that we can learn here about hard stuff in life, just biblically as a whole, right? First, God never promises us a life without storms or trials. Right? What are your expectations entering life? That changes the way you go through life. God never promises that. He never says, hey, life's going to be just really easy. If anything, he says the opposite. Peter, in his first letter, chapter 4, he said, hey, don't be surprised when life is hard. Right? It's kind of the norm, not the exception. Expect it. You live in a fallen, broken world. And not only that, a lot of these storms, God is behind them. And he's doing something in them. Jesus knew this was going to happen. It was his idea to go across the lake in the first place. And he doesn't wake up surprised. He was teaching them something, right? 
God never promises us a life without suffering and trials. Secondly, when God does send those things, when we do experience those, we often interpret them wrongly, right? Mark, the gospel writer Mark, he adds an interesting angle on the disciples' thoughts here during the storm, right? They come down and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you hear that, right? Jesus, do you even care what we're going through? The question is filled with with doubt, right? Unbelief that Jesus is actually good and loving towards them. So in other words, they could kind of be saying, hey, Jesus, if you really loved us, you would be taking care of this. If you really loved us, life would not be this hard. You'd spare us from this. And, And when we have a reaction to the things we go through in life, that reaction is rooted in the fact that we don't think God can have any good reason for bringing tough situations into our lives. Right? We don't think he could have any good reason to do that. We, we, we live in a world that equates hard with bad. If it's tough, it, it must not be good. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says trials do not always equal wrong or bad, which means they're not meaningless even if they don't make sense to us. Tim Keller wrote, he's a pastor in New York City, he said, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. That's really hard to come to terms with. But we do learn, uh, are trials hard? Yes, absolutely. Are they meaningless? No. Right? Jesus knew about this. God is not surprised at what you're going through right now. And he has a reason for it. Right? God sends hard things to us. He's in control of those things. He works through those things in unique ways, and he accomplishes things in us that he couldn't accomplish in other ways, but he specifically accomplishes things in us through the hard stuff. So storms and sufferings, the hard stuff of life is not evidence that he doesn't love us or care for us. We've got to get away from that. And the disciples were struggling with that. Thirdly, God sends storms to bring us closer to himself. Right? The storm's a picture of just where, where life, where you feel overwhelmed, the situation where you feel overwhelmed and desperate. And you're probably going through this somewhere in life right now. I could, I could probably help you. Think of like marriage or parenting. I probably don't have to go further than that. If so, come talk to me afterwards, and you could help me for sure. Uh, right? What humbles you? What shows you just how not in control you are? Right? We can't fully always answer the why of suffering, but we do know that God intentionally and providentially brings us to places that force us to consider who he is, why we need him. He brings us to places to teach us to trust him, to show us that he's our only hope. Right When life is hard, that's the perfect place for us to consider who Jesus is and why he really matters. And that's what he's doing to the disciples here. He's bringing them to a place of greater dependence on him. But the temptation for us in the hard stuff of life is to try to get out of those hard situations as quickly as possible. And that can look a lot of different ways. To avoid the pain, to numb the pain through different types of addiction, to shake out of it, which leaves us with no peace. And I would say that for us, right, all of us, the hard thing that you are going through in life right now, that's the door into knowing God more intimately. That right there, that's the path to getting closer to him. In that place is where you're going to learn to trust him more and rely on him more. The hard thing. Storms, the hard things in life, those are God's way of drawing us to himself because they force us to say, God, I need you. I can't control the situation. It's too much for me. And in that place, he quiets our hearts. 
So can we imagine that Jesus might become more beautiful to us if our circumstances don't change? Right? These things force us uh, to him. But when we try to, to, to find the quick way out of suffering, we kind of short-circuit what God is doing in our lives when we get out of it. Right? It's nearly, the reality is it's nearly impossible to grow closer to God and to learn to live by faith when everything's easy. Amen? When our, when our external circumstances are calm, right, that's why there's so many warnings to the rich where things are just easy, watch out. Life's almost too easy. Because the reality is, the fact that life is often really hard shows us that God has a greater agenda for us than we can imagine. When life is hard, he's doing something that we don't quite fully understand, but he knows we need it. He is making us holy. That's his agenda, which means not always happy. He's bringing us to his side, right? And we have to let go of control for him to work in us, to create a humble dependence upon him, a a have-your-way-I-trust-you attitude. And only then will we find peace. So to sum all of that up, right, the, the hard stuff of life that humble us and shows us how not in control we are, the storms externally, internally, where you are weary and your heart is broken, that's the place where we learn to live by faith and to trust our Father. So that's good, right? But even after establishing the fact that God sends storms for certain reasons, we're still left with questions like, yo, will I drown in the storm? <laughs> he may send them, but is there any guarantee that I won't drown? Will it ever end? Is he good? Does he really care? Can we really have this great faith and peace and not anxiety and stuff when life is hard? Not have fear like the disciples. Is that realistic? Let's look at Jesus' reaction to the storm and how it contrasts with the disciples. Second, the calm. So we know Jesus, he's been teaching all day. He's exhausted. So he goes down in the boat and he falls asleep. And you're like, seriously? (laughs) How could he do this? Right? He knew what was going to happen. In such a time like this, how could he go down and just sleep? This wasn't like rain on a tin roof. This isn't your relax app on your iPhone. It's just the white noise and the wave. You put it beside your bed. That thing's great. Right? This is not that. This is like waves busting over the side of the ship with people screaming, I'm dying type of, type of white noise. And Jesus, right? I don't know if any of you sleep with that type of white noise. But, so there may be something wrong. I don't know. But Mark says that Jesus is asleep on a cushion. It's like, oh, that's nice. In this situation, he's asleep on a cushion. For him to sleep in that type of storm, he must have had a great calm within himself. In spite of what was going on out there. Because even after he wakes up, right, the storm is still raging, and he's still confident, and he's fearless. So although externally the the, the waves are taking him up and down and everything inside, he's steady and he's unmoved. How could this be? And the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he said, Jesus knew that the waters were in the hollow of his father's hand and that every wind was but the breath of his father's mouth and so he was not troubled. Beautiful. Jesus didn't ride a roller coaster through life based on what he was going through because he was assured of his father's love and care for him. Spurgeon said he had a sweet way of leaving all with God. That's trust. And so he had a calm in himself and out of the calm that he had in himself, he was able to create a calm around him, as we will see. Right? Applying this, Spurgeon said, we cannot create a calm until we are in a calm. 
We cannot create a calm until we are in a calm. Ronald Lazenby, he's an author. He wrote a biography on Michael Jordan, a pretty big one that came out last year. And he said that aside from Jordan's athletic skill that made him so great, there was much that's overlooked that made him great. And one of those characteristics was that he had this unbelievable calm in himself in the most intense moments of his career, and it spread to his teammates. He said in games, he was the eye of the hurricane. And the more frenetic and crazy and intense and hectic things got, the calmer he was. Right? And that inner calm, he said, spread and brought a calm to his entire team that led him to perform and flourish in like the biggest moments of his career. So in life, right, spiritually, just going through life, if we don't have a calm within us, there won't be a calm around us. What effect do you have on the people around you? Right? When we come into situations, do we bring more tension and unsettledness or we, do we come with a confidence and a calm and a peace? You know, it's a good question to ask. Maybe, maybe our circumstances reflect what's already in us sometimes. Right? What effect do we have on our spouse and our children? What effect do we have on those who are under us and following us? Convicting to me that so often out of lack of faith in his love and care for me that I can go and just vent my anxiety to other people and get bogged down in fear and uncertainty, not even realizing the unsettledness that I create around me, that I create that. We can only have peace if we have peace within us. And the only way to find that deep calm within us is by getting near the one who has peace, right? Jesus is in the business of walking into just absolute messes and bringing peace. And that's good news. He actually sends us to do the same thing, right? But for us to have that peace, you know, where where we can be at rest, even in the storms, where we can leave all with God, as Spurgeon said Jesus did, We need to know a few things. First, I need to know, does he have the power to help me in my suffering? Can he actually control the storms that he sends? And if so, can I really trust him? And really what I'm asking is, is he all-powerful and is he all-good? As many of you know, my four-year-old, like many of your young children, uh, my four-year-old Jonathan, he's playing his first year of t-ball. And when when he comes up the bat, he like grabs a bat and he does this number and he walks up to the plate and he looks up the crowd the whole time. Like the other night, he literally tripped over bats all the way to the batter's box. And he's just like this, you know. And then he gets up at at the bat, and and they line it up in t-ball, you know. He lines it up, and he's looking at the crowd the whole time. And I'm standing behind him. I take his helmet. I go, Jonathan, ball. Look at the ball. I just keep grabbing his helmet and doing this. And he lines it up. And and even when he runs to first base, he's just like this. I mean, he he veered and crossed the pitcher's mound the other night. I had to run and grab him off the field, Okay. So, he, it, and when he's coming up the bat, it's almost like he's rolling up his sleeves and he's saying, you guys haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> right? Just, just watch what I'm about to do. Is what, is what is really the vibe he gives off. He's not in here. I can say what Jonathan doesn't realize, he's the smallest kid on the field. He's yet, I can say this, he doesn't listen to the podcast or anything. It, <laughs> he's, he's yet to hit it past the pitcher's mound. He's the littlest guy on the field. Jonathan doesn't have real power yet, right? But he flaunts it. Real power, <laughs> he acts it. I've got to tip my hat to that. Real power is understated. Real power is understated, right? In verse 24, when his disciples uh, wake him up, uh, Luke says that Jesus immediately rebukes the wind and the raging waves. He commands it to quiet down. But what you notice here is he doesn't call on any higher power. 
He doesn't. He doesn't say any magical spell towards the storm or roll up his sleeves or make a big deal out of it. He just says two words in Greek. Two words, that's it. And it gives us a picture of a parent hushing a child, right? Where you turn and you say to your kids, hey guys, quiet, now. Or, or, or that's enough, no more. And, and if your kids are like mine, they say, yes, daddy. And they grab their Bible and they just start reading. And, you know, Your kids don't do that. Mine, mine take prayer requests and stuff like that. It's good. Okay, right. That's where my illustration breaks down. Y'all know me well. My, you know my kids well, too. <laughs> uh, my, no, that, that, yeah, that doesn't happen. My boys continue to carry on. Uh, that does not happen here with Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus says, peace, be still. That's it. Two words. Hush, calm down. That's enough. Stop. And it says, immediately there was a calm but again, Mark adds this word in his account of it, mega. He says there was a mega calm, like a great calm, like the waves didn't just keep raging for a couple hours and slowly die down. There was a dead calm, like you go out on the lake early in the morning, it's just smooth as glass, like a tabletop, dead calm. And that miracle right there has huge Old Testament background. This miracle is loaded with like ancient stuff all in it background because the the sea was viewed as this uncontrollable power and evil that could only be stilled by God himself. And Jesus does it with a word. He doesn't call on anyone higher than himself. What is he saying? He's showing us who he really is. He's saying, I can stop the storm and the sea because I own the storm and the sea. It's mine. I made the storm and the sea. It obeys me when I say a word, right? I am him. I am God. Jesus is all-powerful. Mark is pushing that, right? Demons flee when he speaks. Sickness stops, right? Creation itself bows down when it hears his voice. He can control the winds and the waves. He can calm the storm with the word amazing power. That's good. But knowing he has great power is one thing, but it's not the exact same thing as knowing that he's all good. Right? You can have great power without being all good, and that would leave us reason to continue to be anxious and uncertain throughout life. So, is there any guarantee that he won't let us sink? Is there any assurance that he'll rescue us because he cares for us? Because only then can I have this calm, this peace that we keep talking about. And so what we're really asking is what the disciples ask in Mark's account. Do you care? Right? Can we trust him? Is he good? The answer to those questions right there Right, have the potential to change us and our perspective and our perseverance as we go through storms in life, even, even death itself. And so we look at this final point, who then is this? So Jesus calms the storm with a word, and his disciples run up, and they say, yeah! And they do the football thing where you jump up and you bump shoulders. you the man, Jesus. High five. This is awesome. Thank you. No. <laughs> Interestingly, and almost confusingly, if you've picked up on it, they have the opposite reaction. It's kind of weird, right? They become more afraid. Mark, in the span of a few verses, when he records this story, he's driving home a point here, he uses the word mega for the third time. There's a mega storm. There's a mega calm. And you're thinking this would create like a mega awesome. No, it creates a mega fear in the disciples. Who then is this? The disciples realized that, yeah, that storm was deadly powerful, but this guy is so powerful, he stopped it with a word. He's even more powerful. 
right? If someone yelled at the storm and it just stopped, we would be scared too, right? And we saw this type of reaction earlier in the book of Luke with Peter, where Jesus is out on the boat with Peter, and and, and he, he does this miracle where they bring in so much fish that the nets are breaking, and you think Peter would be like, yes, I'm gonna make so much money. Thank you, Jesus, this is awesome. And he falls at his knees, and he says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Get out of here. And the miracle right after this, Jesus does, does a miracle. And he, he casts out these demons, and the people say, go out of town. It is unbelievable power. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you know that this is what people do when they come face-to-face with God himself in the Old Testament. Right? Isaiah 6. He says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Jesus is power itself. Right? We'll watch like tsunamis and hurricanes and stuff on TV all day, and we may have a sense of awe, but not necessarily fear. Because we don't want to come face-to-face with that type of power. Well, most people don't. Some people chase hurricanes. That's another story. Most of us, we don't want to come face-to-face with that type of power because we, will, we would be overwhelmed in fear. Do we view Jesus like that? Right? That powerful. Where it produces a sense of awe and fear and respect, and wonder. The disciples are going through this. They're having this developing realization of who he is, and they reach this point in verse 25, and they say, who then is this? That he commands the winds and the water, and they obey him. Who in the world is this? Luke's been pushing this question all the way up until this point, and all three gospel writers intentionally stop the story right there, and they move on to something else. All three gospel writers, they don't even follow up with that. They just stop. They ask that question, and then they move on. Why? Because they want us to answer that question. Every single one of us have to answer that question. Who is this? That's the question that changes everything. How do you answer that? Right? To stick with the story's terms, let's just ask, who is in the boat with you? Who is it? Right? Who's with you in your suffering? If it's not someone all-powerful, then we, bail, we better start bailing out water when the storm comes, right? If we don't have someone who controls everything with just a word, then we have every reason to be anxious and unsettled and tense in life because there are no guarantees. But the reality is, we'll never make it on our own. Right? The storms, the sufferings, the difficulties of life will wear us down. They will wear us down. And if we are not crushed by them, then death and judgment will crush us. Because we still have to reckon with our sins. We haven't even talked about that. That's too much for us. Who will be with you through that storm? You see, because ultimately, that's our greatest problem. Not necessarily the storms out there and just trying to keep our boat afloat. It's our problem with God because we have left him and he's our maker. And he's been good to us. And we've went our own way and tried to do life on our own. And so we need one who can help us in the overwhelming storm of our sins. Right? One who can save us from condemnation. Who can guarantee our forgiveness. Who can give us God's favor and peace. Who can deliver us from anxiety and worry and sin and and judgment and death and hell. Who will be with us and lead us in that and every storm of this life. Because our sins have separated us from God. They've put us at odds with him, and we can't bucket the water out of this ship on our own. And we can't stop this storm by just being really good boys and girls. Our hope is in another. 
who's all-powerful and who's good. And he's good enough to, to calm the storm for us. Maybe you've picked up on it by now, but this story has striking parallels with the Old Testament story of Jonah, right? If you haven't read that, or some of you have, it's been a while, stay with me, right? Jonah and Jesus, they're both out on a boat. They both go down and go to sleep. And while they're asleep, a big storm, a great storm comes on the water. Both of them are woken up by sailors and other people on the ship who are are afraid that they're going to die. And in both cases, the storm is miraculously calmed. The stories are almost like identical. There's just one huge difference that we know, right? Jonah was disobediently running from God. And he was thrown into the sea for his own sins and the storm calmed down. But the gospel is the good news that because of the love of God for us, right? Jesus has made a way for us to come back to God by being thrown into the sea of God's wrath for our sins. Satisfying his justice and assuring us of his great love for us. The prophet Micah in chapter 7 verse 19, he said, He will again have compassion on us. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what Micah said. Jesus willfully threw himself into the sea of punishment that we deserved. He was buried with our sins so that our Father in heaven could again have compassion on us. And if we know that, we know he's good. And he'll never leave us or forsake us. That's what we read in Romans 8. We can know, if he did that, we can know that nothing can separate us from him. Every storm must be for our good. Because the gospel not only guarantees us of our pardon, but it assures us of God's overwhelming love and care for us over every aspect of our lives and tells us that he's working through it all for our good. That's the calm we need. And we get it by putting our faith in him, right? One initial time where we are born again and then the rest of our lives turning back to him and putting our faith in him. And that changes everything. Can we put our eyes back on him and what he's done for us? Not view him through the lens of our external circumstances, but view our circumstances through the lens of what he's done for us. That's the promise that we can have faith in our trials, that Jesus can be trusted, and he is with us. My boys, they've re- you notice all my illustrations have to do with my boys. They're, they're consuming. That's just life right now, right? They've reached the age where sometimes I'll put them down, and it's dark, and maybe one of them, you know, they'll start crying and, and going on and on. And, and I'll finally go in there, and I'll say, hey, bud, you know, what, what's wrong? And they'll say, I'm, I'm scared, you know. I'm, I'm, and they're crying. they say, I'm all alone, you know. And I'll say, buddy, I was always right here. Right? Is that what you say? You're not alone. I was always right here the whole time. I just wonder, can we imagine getting to him and our father looking at us and saying, why were you so anxious? Why, why did you spend so much time worried and scared? Why? Right? I was with you the whole time. You were never alone. If your faith is in Jesus, the one who calms a storm with a word is with you. So do you hear your father saying that to you? Right? I gave my only son for you. Right? Do you think I'm going to leave you hanging now? When sleepless nights come, when, when hard stuff comes, when, when cancer comes? No. Right? Not even death can separate you from my love. And my love will even outlast that. And we have to remember and define what he's doing. His rescue of us may mean leaving us in our hard circumstances. It may mean not taking us out of our hard circumstances because he's rescuing us unto holiness. Do you see that? That's his his goal. He's rescuing us into being a new creation. He's refining us. And because of his cross and his resurrection... 
right? His ultimate rescue of us will be even through death to new life. And it doesn't even stop there, right? We have this future great confident hope by the fact that God has promised that one day he will calm all storms. The book of Revelation says that there will be no more tears or death or pain. There will be no more sea is what it says. He will make all things right. And he gives us his spirit. He sends us out to be that, to be agents of calm and reconciliation and restoration and hope. Our world desperately needs that. So repeated throughout the Bible is that phrase, right? Do not be afraid for I am with you. And we see that right here at this table. As as we come today, we see his his tender heart, his gentle way with us, his sacrificial love towards us. Um, But as we talk today, we also see his transcendence, how great he is. That leaves us in awe and wonder and, and, and and a healthy fear. And yet that great God asks us to come and dine with him and see what he's done for us. And so this morning, let's examine ourselves. Let's put our faith in him. Prepare your hearts to come to this table now, to look to him in all and hope and thankfulness and love because he, he is with us. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you would love us. God, I, I pray that you would um, give us confidence in your love towards us, uh, give us strength, God. Take away any fear or anxiety or unsettledness. Forgive us, Father, for our lack of fear or our lack of um, faith in you, God. And increase our faith this morning, even as we come, and speak peace and calm the waters of our hearts, God. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At the end of the book of John, Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. But right before he said that, he said, Peace I give to you. He said, I've given you peace. Now that you have peace within you, I am sending you out to do the same thing. And that's what we are sent to do to our city and to be uh, agents of hope and and a calming presence and to turn people to look to him, right? The gospel is the guarantee of that and the promise is that he is with us as we go out to do that work. And so receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.